The title of this message is, Please Follow the Instructions. I'm going to ask to take a poll here this morning to, to wives. How many of you would raise your hands and say your, your husband always follows explicit instructions? Is any, so he, he's holding her hand up. She didn't know hold it up herself. Come on, Jason. Gee whiz, you're in church, brother. <laughs> We're not real good at it. I have to admit that. So picture this scenario. It's the night before your child or your grandchild's birthday, and for weeks and months, you've promised them a swing set. So it's, it's finally, it's finally going to happen, and, and you are not going to let them down. So with all that's in you, you're going to put that swing set together because you made a problem, but you've, you, you've almost made this fatal mistake. You've waited too long to start the project. And maybe you might have had it in your garage or somewhere where you could see it, and you failed to pay attention to the big, bold, black letters that said, some assembly required. Isn't that a load of bull right there? <laughs> Man, when I bought the kids' stuff, I, went in this, I wanted the floor model. And them rascals, they wouldn't, they wouldn't sell it to you because they spent hours putting it together themselves. Man, oh, that, that is a misnomer. Is that, what's that mean? I don't even know what it means. Anyhow, I like the word misnomer. That's, uh, my daughter is an English teacher, and she has not rubbed off on me. Let's put it that way. <laughs> you get so old, grammar really mean, doesn't mean anything to me. I don't care if I make a hundred grammatical errors. God bless you, Stacey. It's just, uh, it, after a while, you just, you just, you just don't care. I, I know it's sad. So who in here has ever had the, the great fortune of putting a swing set together? Anybody in here? This Christian comedian kind of gives us some insight on this. This guy's name is Darren Steblo. It's pretty good. Let's watch. I bought a swing set for my boys because I wanted to be a good dad. Should have read the box first. Some assembly required. Some? I'm not sure these people even did anything on their end. This thing was like one step removed from me mining the ore from the earth myself. It's a thousand pieces of metal in a box. Do they have a job application process for working at a swing set plant? Probably has two questions on the application. Are you lazy beyond all reason? Do you hate your dad? Good news though, my dad called and said, Son, you know that swing set I bought for you when you were little? I said, yeah. He said, it's done. <laughs> Took me three months to put ours together. Three months? And now I'm gonna be sure this thing is legal. I have a bag of stuff left over. <laughs> what do I tell my kids? Don't swing, just don't put your full weight on it. <laughs> Maybe you should just look at it. Some assembly required. At the bottom of the box is one of these comment cards. Please fill this out and tell us what you think of our products. And I filled it out, ripped it up, scooped up the pieces, and sent it to them with a note that said, some assembly required. Christian love, of course. <laughs> then if they're on the instructions, if there is a phone number, you call it and it's somewhere in Indochina or Indonesia and you, they, don't, you, they don't speak English. You know, when we come to Christ, sometimes we bring baggage into the kingdom. 
working on the railroad and, and different places, uh, there's a lot of profanity, and I, I had picked some of that up. But, you know, praise God, when I came to Christ, he, he pretty much healed me from that, pretty much cold turkey. Uh, even when I hit my finger, if you don't believe me, I'll get a hammer up here and hit my finger, and you'll see what I say. But anyhow, there's three things that I do believe in this life that could make a preacher cuss. And the first one's putting string in a weed trimmer. <laughs> Just as you get ready to put it back, one of them, it's like a snake, it'll jump off and unravel, and then, you're, you, know, then you have to do it again. The second one is golf. I got to tell you a story about my son. I, I know I'm not supposed to talk about my family, but if there's anything that could push Josh's button, it was golf. It, it, we was up at Lake Carroll, and it, this is funny because a lot of people would come from Chicago. They bought land out there and built big houses. So these, these were the upper echelon of people. So picture this in your mind. Josh and I and Lance Finley were standing on a tee. I'd hit, and I think Lance did. Josh hit four balls in the water, and all at once he grabbed that bag and turned it upside down and started kicking those clubs. <laughs> Some real golfers with polyester pants and golf shirts pulled up on their golf cart, saw what was happening, put it in reverse, and didn't even come to that hole. <laughs> Since then, he's not played golf. <laughs> He can sure play guitar and a harmonica, though, so I'll give him that, you know. So third thing is putting a swing set together. That diagram there, that's just the stinking glider. That's not the rest of the swing set. But we don't need any stinking instructions as men, do we? We, we have tools, and we can, we can put things together. But the thing is, sometimes you get done... It doesn't even resemble a swing set. It looks like a death trap, actually. <laughs> this is what a swing set put together by me would look, look like in the first few hours. It would that'd be about it. So, and then your wife comes out like Job's wife and looks you in the eye and said, "Curse God and die." So, <laughs> it almost gets to that point. And then you begrudgingly look at the instructions, and you might have to take it apart. Then you can put it back together. A lot of times, I don't know why we, as men, don't like to ask for instructions. Maybe it's because it makes us look bad or might demean us a little bit. Um, but nonetheless, that happens. And this do-it-yourself, me-first attitude sometimes without us really being aware of it, transfers into our life of faith. It's an amazing thing that some of us even think that we can get to the position that we can tell God what to do. This is kind of where the Corinthians were. I, you know, I've been picking on the Corinthians for uh, a few weeks and, and, and going through this book. But th they're, they're so parallel to us and our lives. They didn't want to follow God's instructions. They wanted to, they wanted, they wanted God's blessings. They wanted all these miraculous gifts to be able to show the world and so they could brag on themselves and say, look at the power that God has given me. But they didn't want to follow God's instructions. 
So here in 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 11, Paul takes them, takes them back to square one, so to speak. You know, sometimes we need to go back to the past and see our mistakes and, and what we've learned, but it's, it's paramount that we go back and see how God has dealt with people in life and how that works in their whole life experience. Paul says, starting with verse 1, I don't want you to forget, dear brothers and sisters, what happened to our ancestors in the wilderness long ago. God guided all of them by sending a cloud that moved along ahead of them, and he brought them all safely through the waters of the sea on dry ground. As followers of Moses, they were all baptized in the cloud and the sea, and all of them ate the same miraculous food, and all of them drank the same miraculous water, for they all drank from the miraculous rock that traveled with them, and that rock was Christ. Yet after all this, God was not pleased with most of them, and he destroyed them in the wilderness." We read these in the age of grace, and I, I don't think they have the power and significance that they should. We, we don't see God like this today, even though on Judgment Day, there's going to be a lot of people on this earth that will. It'll be different for us as believers in a sense. We'll suffer loss and reward, and we've talked about that numerous times. But this, is a, this, is, this brings up a different, different God concept, actually. These events happened as a warning to us here now in this place on this day in 2019. That, that's, what, that's, that, that's, the, that's how this carries through the eons, actually, this scripture. These events happened as a warning to us so that we would not crave evil things as they did. Or worship idols, as some of them did. For the scriptures say, the people celebrated with feasting and drinking and they indulged themselves in pagan revelry. And we must not engage in sexual immorality as some of them did, causing 23,000 of them to die in one day. The earth opened up and swallowed the sons of Korah and all their family, all their livestock, everything that they owned was gone. Nor should we put Christ to the test as some of them did and then died from snake bites. There's another case where God sent snakes among them because of their disobedience. And a pole was lifted up and they looked at this pole being high and lifted up and it healed them. And don't grumble as some of them did for that is why God sent his angel of death to destroy them. All these events happened to them as examples for us. They were written down to warn us who live at the time when this age is drawing to a close. Over 2,000 years ago, Paul wrote this, and he said, this age is drawing to a close. And I'm telling you this morning that we're a lot closer to that time than Paul was when he wrote that to the Corinthians. So he brings up how privileged the Corinthians were. He spins the wheel backwards and, and stops it on the spoke to where the Corinthians were that day. Believers at Corinth needed to learn much the same lesson as the children of Israel. So Paul brings this up and he said, your brothers and sisters, your forefathers were privileged by God as you are, but then he names five, supernatural guidance. Although they might have felt as if they were wandering aimlessly, the Hebrews were not without a guide, Paul says in verse 1. For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under that cloud. <laughs> cloud being this, night or the day, it was a pillar of cloud. 
It was always visible. They could always see it. At night, it was a pillar of fire. I, wherever, whenever that cloud moved, they moved. They did exactly. They followed God at that time because they could see him. Can you imagine? I said this <clears throat> earlier. We're always wanting to see God. And it's, he's there, but I don't think we look for him real close. But in this case, can you imagine having a, a nightmare or a bad dream and getting up and going to your front window and the Venetian blinds or curtains and you peered and there was that pillar of fire and you knew that was God Almighty. You knew that it was him, no doubt. I, 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 can't, I can't imagine that. And as Steve had said earlier, that's called the Shekinah glory of God. It was the visible glory. That was their privilege. God, they could see him. Two, second privilege, supernatural deliverance. Paul also says that the Hebrews passed through the sea. Exodus 14 gives us a historical account. I believe this is literal. I have read accounts where people are always trying to discredit the Scripture and, and take away from that and trying to explain it in human terms. And I heard it explained that the Red Sea wasn't really very deep. It was only three foot deep and it had reeds in it. It was called the Reed Sea. Of course, Moses and all of them tromped hundreds of thousands of people tromped through that mud and got on the other side. And when the Pharaoh's chariots got in the water and all that mud, they sank and they drowned and on and on. <clears throat> That's not what this says. I don't, I think it's this way. I believe it with all my heart. Exodus 14. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the Lord swept the sea back by a strong east wind all night and turned the sea into dry land. So the waters were divided and the sons of Israel went through the midst of the sea on the dry land, and the waters were like a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Every physical law says that they should have drowned, but they went through on dry ground. Third privilege was supernatural leadership. Another one of their privileges was the leadership of Moses, God, godly leadership, actually. And it says in 1 Corinthians 10, 2, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. This doesn't mean that Moses held a baptismal service and baptized them all. Baptize comes from the Greek word baptizo, which carries the idea of identifying with something. In Paul's day, if you wanted a garment dyed a different color, you would take it to a merchant who would baptize it. He would dip it to change its identity. Now, Ethan Headley is going to be baptized after a while. That's the significance of that. To be dipped, to change our identity. The symbolism of coming out of the water as a new creature in Christ, changing our identity from the old to the new. I, I, I thought that was pretty cool. I like that, that concept. So the Israelites had been spiritually dipped into a union with God under Moses' leadership. Exodus 14, 31. This is how they responded to his godly guidance. When Israel saw the great power which the Lord had used against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. Fourth privilege, supernatural food. This is another amazing, amazing thing about the Old Testament and this story. 1 Corinthians 10.3, we read that they all ate the same spiritual food. Paul is referring to manna that God supplied for the Hebrews for 40 years, six days a week. They could go out and pick this manna up. They didn't have to turn a tap for it. God just supplied it for them. 40 years. That, that's, an, that's an amazing thing to me. 
Terming, terming the food spiritual, Paul implied that it was to be a means of grace for God's people. It's like for communion for us. When we take communion, we, we take a wafer, and you can do that now. I like visual stuff. That's why we have pictures. That's why I like, I like to be able to relate that. It's my 12-year-old mind, actually, that, that really does that. When I pick this up and when I, when I look at it, Gibson's movie, The Passion of Christ, is for some reason my mind goes there. And as I see his body, the way Hollywood portrayed it, which it was mangled, it was torn, it was beat, it was bruised, it was bloody. But you know what I think of? This body was broken for me. We always say this body's broken for you, this body was broken for me. That that's, that's Eddie's sin on him. I love you guys, but I don't think about your sin. I think about mine. So when we take this bread, I, I always, always hope that it means something to you. That it's not out of habit. But it, but it actually has a great impact on your life. It brings us back to Calvary. It brings us back to where we're at with Christ. Paul said that if there's sin in your life, now's the time to confess it. Christ's body, which was broken for you for the remission of your sins. And it's the same way as you see that blood, life-giving sustenance that we have to have in our bodies. That Christ gave that blood for you and I that it might cover our sins in the past and the sins to come as well. And that should really make us really grateful. Blood of Christ shed for you. Lord, as I say almost every time, I'm at a loss for words. Words can't encapsulate it. Words can't describe what you've done for us and what you continue to offer us in our lives as you give us guidance and direction and peace and joy and all the great fruits of you, Holy Spirit. So right now, Father, I just pray that this has meant something. It's made an impact. This got us to thinking about our relationship with you. Thank you for these folks. Lord, I love them. Just ask that you touch them now. We ask these things in the name of Christ. Amen. Supernatural food. In the last privilege was supernatural drink. And all drank the same spiritual drink, for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them. And the rock was Christ. Here's a perfect illustration of the pre-incarnate presence of the Lord Jesus even before he took human flesh. 
He had his hand in the affairs of people. In this case, providing them with all the water that they needed. If you also remember while they were in the wilderness, all Moses had to do was touch his, his staff to a rock and fresh, fresh clean water came out. So this has given us some things to at least consider. The cloud, deliverance from the sea, leadership, food, and drink. Every one of these privileges was much more than a provision of physical need. Every one of them was an act of grace. In our lives, there is no gift, no blessing, no privilege we enjoy that meets only a surface need. With each blessing, with each kindness that God shows us, it's the touch of his salvation into our lives. We just need to sit there and, and feel it, the subtle stirring of his grace all around us. So here's God's lessons for the Corinthians. You would have thought that the Hebrews would have responded to God with thanksgiving and obedience, but that wasn't the case. After listing their many blessings, Paul explained in verse 5, Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness. Hundreds of thousands, and some have said even maybe a million, left Egypt, went into the wilderness, wandered 40 years because of their disbelief. And it's hard to wrap my mind around, out of hundreds of thousands of people, only Joshua and Caleb got to cross the river. Moses didn't even. And it goes back to that rock story. He was supposed to tuck the rock and water would come out. Moses' anger got the best of him one day and he took that staff and whacked that rock and he didn't get to go. God buried him on Mount Nebo. He didn't get to cross the river. Hundreds of thousands because of disbelief. Their bodies were strewn across the wilderness floor. As Frederick Godet states, what a spectacle is that which is called up by the apostle before the eyes of the self-satisfied Corinthians. All those bodies sated with miraculous food and drink, strewing the soil of the desert. Why does he tell us this? He tells us himself, verse 11, now these things happen to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. What he was saying is you Corinthians need to learn some lessons from this. You see what the Hebrews did and you saw the end result. And what are you saying? Your lives aren't going to go the way they should if you continue to do what you're doing. He get, Paul gives five directions, instructions, if you will. He gives them to the Corinthians and he gives them to us. First one was this. Do not crave evil things. That's the first step in God's instruction. Verse 6. Now these things happened as an example for us that we should not crave evil things as they all craved evil. Paul said it starts small with an attitude of craving for evil. The Israelites had been overexposed to supernatural benefits, yet they failed to get the proper response from that. They kept longing to go back to Egypt. And this is... This is another thing that amazes me. God was feeding them, but it wasn't good enough. 
They wanted meat, so God sent quails, and they stuffed themselves and made themselves sick. They wanted to go back to slavery. Now, none of us can grasp that. You know, we got, we, we, there's problems in this world. One of them is human trafficking. It's beyond our wildest imaginations that people buy and sell and use people every day in this world. And a lot of it's in this country. They knew what it was like to be in slavery. They knew to feel the taskmaster's whip on their back. But yet, because of their bellies, and they missed leeks and garlics. They wanted to go back. They had an attitude problem. Secondly, do not be idolatrous. Second instruction, do not be idolaters of some of them were. An idol is anything that seizes adoration from God. On the throne of our heart, whatever we put there, it could be a person, it could be anything whatsoever. We talked about that last week. Three, do not become immoral, nor let any act immorally as some of them did. Not to become immoral suggesting a process. It begins with an evil attitude, and then, and, then, and then we start to delve into whatever that is, and finally it gets a hold of us. Anything in our lives that's inconsistent with purity, that's what immorality is. Four, do not try the Lord. That's questioning God's faithfulness. Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? And God's response was not a warm one. So Paul warns us. Verse 9, nor let us try the Lord as some of them did and were destroyed by the serpents. Daring God to come through on his promises shows a lack of faith. And then the last one, do not grumble. There was a brash, caustic reaction that poured from the Hebrews' hearts. When they didn't get their way, they complained bitterly and relentlessly the last instruction Paul gives us is not to grumble in verse 10. Grumble, do not grumble as some of them did. And because of that, it says that God judged, judged them harshly. So messages are, are for all of us. And right now, in a personal sense, what's the desert of your heart like? Are any of these things there that we've mentioned this morning. And here's the thing about the Holy Spirit. He, he's the one that lets us know, and, and whoever's sitting beside us doesn't know that, but we know it. That's what Paul was saying to the Corinthians. And here's some lesson for our lives. Even in the presence of great privileges and blessing, the Hebrews refused to follow God's instructions. Why? They had overexposure to miracles. They had overexposure to God things, and they kind of got, got filled up on it. So God con continued to do these things for them, and it didn't, didn't impress, them, impress them so much. I think a lot of time in our lives, as we soak up God's stuff, we're like a sponge. And if that sponge never gets squeezed, it, it spoils. You ever smell a sponge that it, it's, it's a bad gig? It's like Diane had a quart of milk in her one time. Not in her. She didn't drink the whole quart, actually. But it fell under her seat getting groceries, and she didn't find it, and it spoiled, and then it, the seal broke or whatever, and it seeped out in the car. And she thought I was stinking, so she had to scrub me down. Not really. But anyhow, in, in our spiritual lives, we can get so full. And, and if, we don't, if we don't have any outreach, if, if we don't use our gifts, if we don't do ministry, we just soak it in and soak it in. And after a while, we just come and set, and it's, it, it, it didn't mean what it used to. 
Some solutions are we need to recognize and confess and forsake whatever is keeping us from God. Second, deal severely with these attitudes. Maybe go behind our masks. We're experts sometimes at wearing masks. We need to rip our Sunday mask off sometimes and see what we look like on Thursday afternoon. Third thing, listen to what our speech is, what's coming out of the mouth. Pay attention to the choice of our words. Are they cutting? Are they cynical? Are they bitter? Are they coarse? Luke 6, 45, a good person produces good deeds from a good heart, and an evil person produces evil deeds from an evil heart. Whatever is in your heart determines what you say. We need to keep our lives vital and alive. And we do that by doing ministry. Jesus can summarize this whole message up in Luke 12, 48. And from everyone who has been given much shall much be required, and to whom they entrusted much of him they will ask all the more. The Hebrews and the Corinthians were all prime examples of people... God had seen fit to privilege. And I believe that we are people of privilege this morning in this place as we live in America. You know, to be obedient is to listen to God. And at the end of services, the Holy Spirit comes and knocks on our hearts. And we've got two choices. One, we can ignore him. So you need to go to the person next door. That person on that other table has a lot more need than, than I do, God. And we can ignore it, and he'll leave us alone. He's a perfect gentleman. Or secondly, we can do what he asks, whatever that might be. Whatever sin needs confessed, whatever person you need to ask for forgiveness, doesn't matter. But the fact is, or, or some of these in our life, these five stages that the Hebrews and the Corinthians that you and I face in our lives, our attitude, our idolatry, our immorality, our distrust, are grumbling and complaining. And so I ask you today, people that I love, is, are any of these stages alive and well in your life? And if they are, uh, you need to deal with them. Lord, I love you. I thank you for your great love and mercy and grace. And Father, right now as we bring this time together to a close, that it's what I've always asked, that we just be honest with you. Whatever that might be, whatever direction you're wanting to take us or however you affect our hearts, that we might respond. I say this a lot, Lord. We, we can pray right where we sit, and hopefully we do. Or we can come down here, and there's people that love you. We'll pray with you. And if you need to know how to find Christ and you don't know that and you want help, that's what this place is for up here is for you to come, and we'll gather around you and maybe... We can help each other along the way. So right now, Father, I just pray that you'd have your way in these lives. And Holy Spirit, I turn this service over to you explicitly. For I ask it in the name of Christ. Amen. <coughs>